in a world driven by selfies and social media, where empathy and entrepreneurs are considered contradictory. One podcast has set out to put empathy back in the boardroom by hearing from the best entrepreneurs around the world. Empathize It will hear from the leaders of the digital economy and learn how the soft skills drive their business. This is the Empathize It podcast. So today, uh, good morning, Simon. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Awesome. Um, so today on the podcast, I'm really honored to host Simon Choi, or Ch- I think it's Choi, uh, the CEO of Solomon 16, Choi. Yep. Choi, the, six, the CEO of Sixteen Handles. Uh, for anyone who's not on the East Coast, it's basically the largest Froyo brand uh, there. He's also a serial entrepreneur for many years, uh, but he really is working in the F and B. Uh, uh, industry for years. Um, as one of my favorite foods in general is ice cream, uh, there's a favorite quote uh, that I like to start with when I'm talking about ice cream. And that's uh, from, uh, I don't know if you've seen the TV series, Someone Feed, Somebody Feed Phil. Have you ever seen that? I have not. Okay. So uh, Phil Rosenthal, who's also the creator of Everyone Loves Raymond, goes on this world mm-hmm expedition uh, to find the best foods of their different worlds, bringing people together through food. And every place he goes to, he finds the ice cream store. And he says that the reason why he is, is because the ice cream store is a place that pe- brings people's smiles. Basically, there's no way that a job, a person at the ice cream store can't bring a smile to anyone's face, no matter what. Uh, so with that beginning and that introduction, um, I really want to hear from you. Like, how did you get the, how did you get the idea to bring smiles to, every, to millions of people around the United States and the world in general? Sure. So um, I, I can certainly uh, attest to Phil's uh, statement and agree with it myself. Um, I grew up in, uh, in Southern California, but was originally born in Seoul in South Korea. So I immigrated with my parents uh, in the early 80s. And my father ended up becoming a multi-unit franchisee of a Japanese uh, restaurant franchise uh, when I was in high school. Awesome. And when I graduated from university a few years after, he had asked me to come help him and run uh, one of his restaurants in San Diego, California. And it was really at that point that I was able to kind of immerse my um, knowledge within marketing, which is what I studied and, and really what I'm most passionate about, which is um, kind of branding and consumer behavior, um, along with the hospitality piece of interacting and working with people. And so the hospitality industry, branding, Food, food is, again, the, I think the universal language um, of love. And so when you, it doesn't matter what culture you come from, and really you talk about like, you know, mom or grandma's home cooking, right? And I think that sparks some sort of a warm and fuzzy feeling, again, regardless of what culture you come from. And so, you know, I think that it was really the intersection of all those things that allowed me to focus on food too. Again, like you said, bring smiles and bring warmth um, to, uh, to individuals uh, globally. As a matter of fact, our mission at 16 Handles is to create moments of happiness by sharing the world's best tasting desserts and snacks centered around quality, self-expression, and fun. But again, it starts off with really creating the moments of happiness. And our retail store is what we found over the last almost 11 years now is it's become that happy place for people. And so, Mordecai, I'm glad that you even shared that you know, your visits coming to New York City from Israel with your family, one thing that hasn't changed and that has stayed constant really those visits to 16 handles because it brings your family um, again those moments of happiness and so uh, I think that's a testament to 
really what um, what I've built and what my team is, is now uh, continuing to execute and why it keeps me so focused and uh, really engaged within the food and, serve, uh, food and beverage space because um, fortunately for us, it's not something that Amazon or that a smartphone will ever replace in terms of, of consuming food. And then again, I think that retail experience is something that will remain uh, special and unique and be a driver as a destination because while people can certainly, uh, you know, get it delivered or, you know, buy it from the grocery store and make it at home, there is something to be said about having a, a place of the gathering to be able to share that uh, either with your family or friends or, or even by yourself. So Absolutely. we've Absolutely. seen that uh, from all, 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 all sources of life and across all spectrums in our marketplace. Absolutely. I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly it. I mean, I love the statement. I love the mission of to create moments of happiness through high quality uh, food. I hope I got that right, but if not, I'll, I'll review it for the, uh, on the website. But um, I'm going to ask a, a funny kind of question, but you know, I used to work in catering a little bit as a waiter, uh, never worked in the food, like the front line of the food and never really worked besides it in my own kitchen. But my friends who are bakers and work in the pizza store, they always say that, you know, after a while you kind of get sick of the food, but is it true that when you go into a 16 handles now, do you, do you still enjoy those cups of ice cream or those, you know, cones of ice cream? Or is it like one of those things like, I don't want to see it anymore. I don't don't know. I just talk about it or build it, build a business. Kind of funny question. Um, no, so it, it, it's not something that I get sick of. Um, if anything, again, like that is our lifeline, right? And that's why this business exists. I think something that's unique to our approach is something very similar to, um, you know, my kind of childhood favorite ice cream shop and chain, which was a 31 flavors basketball. Oh, man, yeah, that was and my so, <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, growing up in Southern California, you know, that was, that was my kind of, you know, kid in a candy store. That was my treat. That was my reward. That was where my mom would buy my, you know, ice cream birthday cakes to celebrate my, you know, my birthday every year. So, what, what, which was your really favorite, what was your favorite cake? Candy. What was your favorite cake? Sorry. What was the what my was the favorite ice- cake? My yeah. favorite cake was probably like the, uh, the the cookies and cream with the with the Oreos on it. Oh yeah, of, co- of course. Yeah, but you know, again, I think it was just more about the the retail experience and what the brand represented, which was having the most number of choices, being able to go in and, and try all the different samples of flavors, the the launching and release of new flavors to keep me kind of on my toes and wanting to see what's new, but always being able to go back and still get my favorites. And so I took what I, you know, kind of remembered from a nostalgia factor and applied that to 16 Handle. That's another reason why when it comes to the name, I wanted to own a number just like Baskin-Robbins owns 31, right? And my demographic was, you know, that uh, kind of millennial female. That was the thesis behind this, was that she was the one leading her um, kind of cravings and dessert desires into an environment that provided her these options, but also provided her maybe um, something a little bit different than what ice, traditional ice cream stores have, which is more customization, you know, healthier offerings, and again, the soft serve format, which I think has um, a lot more repeatable business, and um, you know, than maybe a scoop shop. And so, you know, it's really a lot of those factors, and that's how we applied that. Now, that's why I was the one to really, you know, uh, launch with 16 flavors. Um, you know, it's something also that, from a, a psychological standpoint, this is more the marketing uh, mindset was. You know, every female here in the U.S. looks forward to her sweet 16, right? That's her celebration and kind of the moment right. of transitioning into womanhood and coming-of-age moment. And so something that would really resonate with her. Um, but then, again, the name, just like 31 Flavors, tells you what the experience is going to be. 16 Handles lets you know that you're going to go in there. It's self-serve. You draw from one of the 16 Handles. 
um, or all of them, if that's what, if that's what you like, and <laughs> you create your own. Absolutely. So I, love, that, I love that. Yeah. I love that. I love the fact that you, like, you, you took that experience. I mean, a 31 flavors, like you said, is like when I was growing up, that was my go-to store. In fact, that store doesn't exist where my parents are still live there. Uh, but the memories, my grandmother, you know, every time she would come, she would she would take us to ice cream. And then when sometimes she would cheat out of the door and say, I got to go get something. And we all knew where she was going, even though she didn't tell us where she was going. And that, those real great memories are really built around that ice cream and that experience. And I love the way that you took it to the next level where you said, I want to recreate that in a way that's much more you know, engaging because your stores, every, every one of your stores that I've been to, I mean, I don't even know if you call them stores, but um, the, the, you know, the 60 handle, uh, I guess the franchises, every one of them is like super colorful, super engaging. The staff is amazing. Uh, the ones, at least the ones I've been to. Um, so it's, it's just complete, like a complete, like a, like a, I guess a experience of the senses kind of thing. Yeah. Look, I mean, the, creating uh, an experience that makes people feel like they want to keep going back to that coupled with amazing tasting products. I mean, that's a winning formula that, that will never grow old. And so right. that's really for us, you know, when, when we hear people say, Hey, um, 16 handles, you guys make the best tasting product. That's great. And we love hearing that. But when it's, Hey, I love the 16 handles experience and brand because not only do they make the best tasting product, but I love the way that the environment, that the service, that, everything just makes me feel that's something you'll never grow tired of. And you know, maybe hence why uh, we've been able to keep your family coming for the last <laughs> seven years and hopefully for many years more. Absolutely. So, uh, you, you know, you built this amazing brand. You've got, you're going literally global ar around the world with this amazing franchise. The journey has been obviously filled with ups, downs. What highlights about your journey is at least specifically around 16 handles. Would you like to share with uh, the audience in terms of like the, the good things, the bad things? Cause the focus is on entrepreneurship and building a great company and building things that the, the struggles that entrepreneurs sometimes don't necessarily uh, talk about when they're, you know, when they're being, uh, when they reach that success point, is there anything in your journey that you'd like to share about those, you know, those less than great moments? Sure. So, you know, I moved out to New York city with this, um, with this business in mind. I mean, it was the only reason I moved out here. And the reason I did that was, I mean, for one, I was 27 years old, I was single, and uh, you know, very much this was gonna be my first platform to be able to build a business. And fortunately, I have a you know, very generous and um, uh, willing you know, parents and aunts and uncles who had the faith in my ability and my ambition to do this. Um, because you know, 2008 in New York City was not exactly the best time to be starting any kind of business. No, it was not. Real estate market, the uh, you know, uh, companies like Lehman Brothers. Um, you know, it was just a lot of uncertainty. And so, the reason I bring that up is I feel like the the less I knew about all of those things going on allowed me to boldly be confident about what I knew, which was you know, I worked at the very first self serve frozen yogurt shop. So this model wasn't one that I invented, but I certainly created the branding around, you know, this, this model of 416 handles. But I had a family friend who was, uh, you know, kind enough to be able to show me this business. And so the trade-off was, I said, I will come work for you for free if you teach me this business. Now, I have to give credit to Mr. Shim over at um, America's uh, Cup Yogurt. I call it Mr. Song over at America's Cup Yogurt in Costa Mesa, California. If any of your users ever go out to Southern California, please visit that store. Uh, that's where it all started. And, you know, in, in seeing his concept and how he bought that business in 1990, 
I met him in 2007 and I worked for him, you know, for about three months and then came out to New York City in 2008 to, to, to launch my own version of that. And, you know, so when I, when, I, when I saw this business model, I knew that it would work. You know, I also had experience working for my father's Japanese uh, buffet franchise that he was part of. So I understood people like customization. They love choices. But I love this business model of do it yourself, you know, charge uh, by weight. Um, but the customization piece is, is, is uh, you know, very impressive with all the choices. And again, create a retail environment that people will love. Um, I came in really knowing that that thesis was going to work anywhere. And, uh, and chose New York City because of just the sheer brand power that New York City has. Now, had I been, you know, uh, you know, working in Wall Street or in finance at that time, I mean, again, like I, I probably would have been more scared off because of the landscape, you know, politically as well as economically to, to start anything. But going in blindly and just knowing that I want to build a brand around this platform um, allowed me to kind of cut through all that noise and really just focus on creating the best experience, you know, providing the best product as possible. And, I went into the East Village, which, you know, for those um, of your listeners who aren't familiar, this is in downtown Manhattan. It's an area that uh, is very uh, vibrant, a lot of activity with uh, especially the younger folks. You have uh, NYU and a lot of their dormitories based there. Right. And so, you know, with, with that, it was an area also that I had 10 direct competitors selling ice cream, wow. frozen yogurt, gelato, what have you, within a four block radius. And so if you've been to New York City, four street blocks is, is not, that much, not that much real estate, uh, but there were 10 ice cream or frozen dessert shops. And I went in there because what I realized in doing some research is that uh, there was nowhere else, not only in New York City, but in the whole US that had that many frozen dessert shops in such a small geographic area. And my thesis again was, if I can beat out those 10, then people will know and, and say, not just me, but they'll say that 16 Handles is the number one frozen dessert shop in New York City, which then I thought would translate into, you know, on a national level, you know, New York City is looked upon as kind of the leading when it comes to trends and brands. And then from a global scale, which is something that was always a dream of mine to build a global brand, again, New York City is also looked upon uh, with that same type of regard. And so that was my simple strategy. And I thought that the vehicle was going to be 16 Handles. And I did all those things. You know, I think if I were to go head to head today, even though I have a lot more experience, I've had a lot more learning um, and certainly could you know, raise a lot more money now, um, I would say that I'd still be you know, afraid of that version of Solomon in 2008 just because of that, that complete desire to win and not being focused on anything else but doing that. You know, I have a family now. You know, there's a lot more uh, you know, to risk, and I understand the, the landscape here in New York City as well as just everywhere in general. Um, so that's one thing is, you know, I really like to encourage those entrepreneurs um, who are really truly passionate about executing against their idea, not to, again, turn off, um, you know, listening to anyone uh, around you, but again, take it with a grain of salt. And, you know, I, I truly believe that in the beginning, in any early stage environment like that, the, desi the sheer desire to win, uh, to win and muscling your way through any kind of uh, uh, obstacles and overcoming those objections is a lot more critical than having the fanciest business plan, having the, the fully vetted out board and, 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 the, and the, uh, the investors that are going to be able to see you all the way through. It's, you know, that's what I found is I truly believe that, you know, uh, a, a trait that all entrepreneurs and successful entrepreneurs that I've also come across and now are friends with have seen is, and it's the word that you hear a lot of is that grit. And that grit to me um, is a magnification of your desire to win executed daily. That's what it is. You know, it's not just a mind state 
It's also the execution of how badly you want to um, uh, you know, um, execute your idea. And so, you know, for me, it was, you know, working seven days a week, you know, not because I, I you know, have to, but because I wanted to. And I wanted to be there at a time when, you know, my business was so new and I had so much competition in the space. I didn't understand the New York City marketplace because I'd never done business there before, nor have I ever even lived there. So I'm kind of coming in blind, but understanding that New York City is a dynamic place, right? Everything that I know knew of New York City came from, you know, film and media and, and what I've read, just like anybody else who's visited. But again, the practical approach to really understanding what really drives my business, what really drives the marketplace and my customers to kind of want to come and then fall in love with my brand and product is really the daily interaction and learning that I would find and the pivots that I would need to make, understanding, hey, they like these products, they don't like this. They like this part of the business, they're not so fond of this. And being there to be able to make those pivots, not being there because I just want to save money on labor. You know, again, it's really being there to understand and to listen. I think the other benefit about starting in 2008 was this is really when uh, social media, as we know it today, uh, became prevalent for business owners and operators to use as a tool to have two-way communication and visibility with customers. Prior to that, it was really the traditional channels of digital print, uh, sorry, more uh, you know, TV, print, and uh, you know, billboards. And now here's a way that you know, with an app or through your you know, mobile device or through your desktop, you can now have these conversations real time. And back then, it was beautiful because you didn't have to pay to have that reach everyone. It, it reached everybody. And so I, I jumped on that because, for one, I didn't have a big advertising and marketing budget, but I realized just how powerful it was where, you know, even if I'm not in the store, you know, I can still continue to communicate and listen to what the customers think and respond to them, you know, real time or, or very close thereafter. And that became a powerful tool and, and powerful tools for me to be able to, again, have a leg up hey, like I'm evolving and pivoting when I need to because all that information is, is real time. And it's not, hey, my sales are down and what do customers like and don't like and do I need to have expensive focus groups? Again, kind of the traditional methods in which marketers and, um, and advertisers have gone about you know, doing this for their clients or for their own businesses was changing with, with this digital landscape and really with, again, social media. And so I was able to, again, be an early adopter of that as well as just technolo technological tools. You know, we have LCD screens instead of you know, paper signs that tell you what our flavors are and nutrition facts. We were you know, displaying those things prior to even uh, our marketplace requiring that to be a part of, uh, you know, because of legislation. We just wanted that transparency up front. Why? Because I noticed uh, early on, for instance, that um, especially these, uh, uh, these young women that were coming in after yoga and after their spin class, were coming into our stores to treat themselves and they wanted to see how many calories they had and wanted to measure and be able to take, uh, you know, a, a portion up to the scale to see like what that is. Because again, their lifestyle, um, this was matching up with their lifestyle needs, right? And their dietary needs. And that's the other thing that I think that we did great with 16 Handles was really creating this environment where it's an inclusive environment. We're not telling you how much you should or shouldn't get. We're also not telling you what types to get, meaning, you know, Pinkberry was really the brand that put kind of frozen yogurt 2.0 on the map, you know, back in 2005 when they launched in Los Angeles. And when I moved to New York City in 2008 and opened that first location, they already had 13 locations in Manhattan alone. So Froyo and frozen yogurt was synonymous with Pinkberry. And so I knew I had to overcome that. And again, so I focused on certainly having the tart flavors that they made very popular. So a lot of people would come in and say, do you have the Pinkberry type of tart? Yes, we do. As a matter of fact, we have a few of them that are even flavored. 
But I also knew uh, growing up, you know, really liking more of the sweeter ice cream type and also some fruit sorbets, that there were other formats that people were going to look for. Sorbets, you know, attract, uh, you know, those who are lactose intolerant or want to, you know, eliminate dairy or vegan. Um, you know, we had no sugar added for those who were really looking for less sugar intake. And then we had, again, just more like savory and sweet flavors, indulgent flavors for those who are just more of the general mass. So here, whether you have a family or a group of people coming in, there's something for everybody. And I thought that that was a place how you're going to also be able to kind of you know, create moments of happiness that people can share. Because I'll tell you, a lot of times, you know, it becomes very exclusive when uh, you have somebody in the family or friends who can't have something. And so like you want to, you know, kind of create an experience and not offend them or want to include them. So it just becomes very challenging. So now it's like, hey, you can drop all your guards. You can go in there and there should be something for everyone. And, you know, staying along the lines of that, I think we've also been able to evolve to where we are now, where now the types of things that we're looking at from flavor development and from product are new kind of marketing terms and monikers that are applying to people's lifestyle, which is things like, uh, you know, low sugar, low carb, you know, uh, uh, keto, or uh, vegan or you know, gluten-free. And these are the types of things that are driving people purchasing behavior. Um, so again, when I, when I thought out to create 16 handles, it wasn't just to create kind of the, the best uh, frozen yogurt and dessert brand. It was also how do we create the best lifestyle brand? And for me, lifestyle is not just being gimmicky and saying we're lifestyle because we think we're cool. It's really how do I stay relevant and engaged with you as a customer as your lifestyle and dietary habits and, and things are also going to change, right? And then as you go on to have uh, children and grow your family and go into you know, or an office or a friend environment where there's people who have different types of dietary restrictions or choices, we want to stay relevant. We don't want you to drop us because we're just a Froyo dairy brand. You know, we want to be inclusive. And that's why even for 2019, our strategy is all of our flavor, new flavors that we're launching this year uh, which we launch on the 16th of every month, right? Just to maintain ownership of that number is that. going to be a plant-based vegan flavor, right? Because that's a growing category, especially here in New York city. And um, as people's lifestyles are, are changing and people are making more of these decisions to, um, again, some of them are eliminating or, you know, minimizing their dairy and meat intake and trying to find substitutes. We want to be there during that journey. We don't all of a sudden want to become irrelevant, right? What if I do in your family came, um, and come this year and say like, hey, we loved 16 handles, but actually our whole family uh, is now non-dairy. And I, and I did the same thing I did 10 years ago. Then we're, we're now no longer going to be a destination for you because you're going to be right. looking for those you know, dairy-free ice cream shops, right? And so we want to stay relevant in everyone's lifestyle journey. And that's how we think that we can continue kind of our growth and our path towards again, being that lifestyle brand. I love that. So, you know, I think that's certainly no, no, from a journey no, perspective. Oh, awesome. It's, I mean, it was amazing. I mean, I just like, I happen to be that my family is kosher and knowing all your products, especially it says boldly on your website, everything of our products is kosher, yep. except for a few that in the store that we go to, there's a few, but they're even color coordinated based on the cups of the toppings. So that way, you know, which ones are mm -hmm. vegan, nut-free, kosher, whichever it is. And I, I think it's yeah. very, and done very tactfully in a way that no one's going to be like, oh, we don't get it or it's offensive or anything like that. It's very, mm -hmm. very non-discreet and very carefully done. So I think that was, I mean, to your credit, it's amazing. Um, and I really love the fact that you told the entire journey of how you used, you started at a point where you know your competition was, was already very successful and you said, well, I'm going to do it anyway. 
and you have to be, overcome a huge challenge, which is this pink berry. I like the fact that you called it frozen yogurt 2.0, which was kind of cool. Um, but I also like the fact that you integrated social media early on into, um, as a part of your brand, because most brands at that time were still saying is, oh yeah, we'll do it or whatever, we'll kind of put it as a checkbox. But you said, no, we'll bake it. We'll kind of like, you know, mix it into our, into our marketing because A, it's at the time it was cheap or even free to do it. And second of all, it gives you a chance to listen to your customers in a way that doesn't have to cost you an arm and a leg. And third of all, you're able to adapt it and, and move things along much faster because you're in control and you're the person behind this, you know, literally behind the counter, but also you're the person making those decisions because you, you are, you're the, the owner. So it gives you so much of a, it gives you so much of a, a different perspective because a lot of the companies and brands that I've spoken to who are in 2008, like you said, uh, you know, they, they were looking to make sure that they could just ride this, you know, ride this wave of difficult challenges. You're saying is, no, I didn't have much to go against because, you know, I didn't know New York City. So I'm going in there blind in this big city. Uh, I only have one choice to succeed. And I love that approach to it. Um, and I love the fact that your journey was like, you know, was so, was so done with such a, so thoughtful, so deliberate, et cetera. Um, but how did you know that? I mean, my question, I, I, after hearing that journey, I have a question of like, how did you know that on that journey that you were like going through from 2008 till today, at, when did you reach the point you're saying is, okay, we've got it. This is it. 16 handles is, is here to stay as opposed to like, you know, you, the beginning, the competition was fierce and you're in this four block radio, sure. 10 different companies that are can easily have out, out, you know, out, uh, outweighed you, outperformed you, whatever it is. How did you know at what point were you like, okay, we've reached the turning point. We're there. Yeah. So, um, I think one of the indicators of that was really when we became the number one, um, you know, frozen dessert uh, brand in New York city, specifically in Manhattan. And I knew that just because there was uh, you know, data out there and sales data. And I realized that from an average unit volume perspective, our stores were grossing the most out of any frozen dessert uh, shop or brand in the entire country, actually, let alone New York city. Um, and so, you know, that was in 2010. And that's also when we started franchising. So, you know, what I'll also share is that like this, this whole journey started with a $600,000 investment from family, right? So we're still family owned. Um, I haven't taken on an outside investment or done a capital infusion or even a reinvestment from, you know, original stakeholders who are, you know, mom, dad, aunt, and uncle um, since 2008 when I started the company. So all of this has come through organic growth and through franchising efforts. That's how we grew. Um, you know, once I saw the high interest in franchising, I knew that, you know, we were going to be on a trajectory that was going to allow us to grow and scale. Um, in terms of how did I know at what point was it then that, hey, this is brand? I mean, really, it's just the validation of people ever since then that say, um, hey, my family or my wife or my kids love 16 Handles. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of reemphasize that again. For me, my key performance indicator of success has never been who has the most number of stores. Now, having the highest sales volume, sure, as a business owner and an operator, that is a true and, and, a, and an absolute indicator of success, right? Because you can't have the lowest sales and say that you're the best. Right. Um, right. But for me, again, I think the most important thing to be a lifestyle brand is when people say they love it. Not that they've heard of it, not that they tried it and thought it was okay. Um, and certainly not if they hate it. <laughs> you, know, you never want to right. hear that. But when people can say, when they meet me, oh, what do you do? And they know what? Oh my gosh, we love 16 handles. That's a win, right? That's, a, that's an indicator of a win. And again, going back to the mission statement, right? To create moments of happiness. Right. Like the, the highest form of happiness that can be expressed as human beings is love, right? right? That's the ultimate. 
that is that is the greatest and that is also the, the most extreme in that regard so you know to hear that then lines up with what we're trying to do because if we're truly passionate about it, again like you said creating those smiles or creating moments of happiness then love has to be your kpi it can't be hey just awareness or most number of stores and people think it's okay or you know it's got to be love and so um, you know, for us, that's really important and something that I ingrained in not only how I approach my business each day, but also for my team. It's like, guys, if we're not getting that, then we need to be working harder or we need to be changing something so, so that we hear that over and over and over again. And I think that's kind of been the secret sauce to us being able to stay you know, very engaging and kind of top of mind to people when it comes to our categories is that's our success. It's not, hey, I mean, sure, we celebrate when we have a store open. And by no means are we always successful. We've had store closures. I've closed some of my own company in stores just because they weren't the right real estate locations or, or other factors. But again, when we hear it from the public and when we hear it both online, right? Because again, we're very acute and sensitive to what people are saying about us online, as well as in person, um, both in stores. And again, like I meet a lot of people. I network a lot. I go to a lot of different types of shows, whether they're franchising, food shows, um, technology conferences. And when I hear that, I mean, that to me is, again, an indicator of success. And it's, you know, knock on wood, but if it comes to a point where I'm starting not to hear that, that's when I'm going to know that something's wrong. And I, and I would bet and guarantee that that will also then align with how our store's performance is doing. I do think that there's a correlation there. Absolutely. I love the fact that you, you kind of put that, the, no, the number one KPI is love, both for, for, from yourself as a person who's created the company and also from your mission statement for your staff and for the entire company is we have to make sure that everyone who walks in our door and walks out of our door loves what we do. Uh, and also the people behind the counter love what they do. So that way they're always making sure that they're getting those moments. I mean, I, I seem to recall when you were saying this about these moments of happiness, I mean, Disney is the only other company that I know of that does something very similar with their mission statement. They are the best. They are the elite right. um, when it comes to, and, and I would say the definitive winner in, in the world in any right. brand that has certainly you know, created successful verticals and, and right. monetized on that. So I completely agree with your, your thought on that. Right, yeah, I mean, they, they, I, remember, I seem to remember someone told me once that Disney has that something very, like they make magical moments or something like that, very similar, yeah. where, you know, like magical memories or something like that, where their, their brand is whatever we can do and anywhere around the park and anywhere you go around Disney and everywhere, even online and offline, you're, they're creating opportunities for you to kind of engage with their brand and there's no yes. way a no doesn't come out of their mouth. In other words, like it's about making sure that you come out of there saying is I love Disney. I loved what I did. I love that memory. I loved everything about it. And when you, when you say those moments of happiness, like through food, it's, it just resonates with me saying like, that's what Disney does. And why not create that same experience with ice cream, which is exactly what it should be doing. So, I mean, yeah. sorry, frozen yogurt. I don't want to make all it, you know, but. Uh, well, no, but you're actually not wrong. So, I mean, I think something else I'd like to clarify sure. is I think that uh, when we started in 2008, it was certainly that time and that, um, uh, you know, that space where everyone was kind of looking at froyo and frozen yogurt. But we've also evolved in our offerings over the last, you know, five years where we actually do sell soft serve ice cream. We sell, we sold a soft serve custard. We sold right. a soft serve Italian ice. We have non-dairy survey. We have a vegan soft serve that's not frozen yogurt. So, you know, we're even for us, like we don't want to just be known as the Froyo brand. We want to be known as the, your dessert destination and have all the different types of formats. Again, dietary restrictions, flavors, flavor profiles, types of toppings. Um, because again, like that's now our evolution because frozen yogurt, to be quite honest, doesn't have the same cachet that it did, you know, five years ago in terms of as a trend. 
right? right. But frozen dessert, whether you substitute that with froyo ice cream, whatever has you know, a lot of people have different uh, preferences. You know, it, it, like you said, even globally is not going to go away. Like that is the happy place or should be the happy place. And so we just want to make sure that we're providing the type of offerings that people through their lifestyle journey are going to be able to enjoy. So if that's froyo for you, great. If that's ice cream for you, great. We have that too. And if it's a non-dairy that's not froyo or ice cream, we have that as well. So I, lo- I just yeah. love that. It's, I just okay. Love it's the- okay for you to call it froyo <laughs> ice cream or any kind of uh, frozen dessert. <laughs> so uh, then I stand corrected. I love the fact that you're calling it like a destination. I, I mean, it just like, it inspires me because so many companies and so many businesses out there don't view that as like, if you're coming into my stores, I mean, I use it when I was working in the digital marketing space. I use it as like, someone's coming to your website. That's your chance. You've got them in now. Now's your chance to engage them, give them that ultimate experience, give them the ultimate value. I love the fact that you're saying is our stores are destinations. You're viewing it as like a complete, you know, like I said, is like, you know, experience of the senses, experiences of, you know, everything that you can so that they're, they're mm-hmm. like a little, like a mini vacation, if you will. Like it's going in there, like we're coming, taking a few minutes of time to relax talk to each other, engage with each other over a cup of ice cream or a cone of ice cream. And, and I love that. I just, I think it's such a, such a, it's such a change of pace. And even today, like even 10 years later, after you've been completely successful, you've gone global. There's still brands out there that are not doing it that way. They're not viewing it as like a, a destination experience. Like their stores are not that experience. And so it's, it, you know, obviously there are many that, that are, but some of the, so many of them are not. And that's to me is like such a refreshing mindset. I mean, it's great. So I have yeah, a question. I, mean, I, I think it's important to do that um, as a brand, and especially if you are looking to go outside of your marketplace, even if that's to another state or let alone another country or culture, is these things have been thought through. You know, and again, I think that's the advantage that I maybe had not only being brought up in food service because of my parents, but again, being more of a marketer in terms of mindset and, and, um, and, as, and a practitioner of those things. So, you know, as, as, as humans, we respond very heavily, again, positively or negatively to the different senses. So I wanted to make sure that each destination, you know, had that touch point on sight, sound, touch, smell, and taste, right? And I I believe that our stores, um, you know, certainly hit every single one of those. And that's also what allows us to be that destination because, you know, I think a lot of places will only kind of focus on one or two. But when you have all those together, again, in the subconscious mind of of our guests that are coming in, they just know they leave happy but they may not know exactly why, you know, some yeah. might say like, Oh, it's fun because I get to, you know, I just make it myself. Right. Brothers. It's like, Oh my gosh, the product tastes so good. And they, and I, and I love doing it this way. Brothers. It's like, Oh, it's so cool because you know, I go in there and it's colorful and they have like loud music and it's like a fun environment, but it's actually just a combination of all those things. And some, us as individuals, we respond more favorably or stronger or gravitate towards, you know, one over, over another. But that's why I think it's important to have it all because, you know, if you're only focusing on sight, let's say, and, and have the visual, but somebody is really more, um, you know, going to make a purchasing decision based on, on sound or on taste. Like you have to be able to incorporate those things, I think. And I think yeah. that the brands that do it the best, as you mentioned, um, like we said, is even Disney, right? You right. think of if you walk into a Disney park, they have all those things as well. And so, um, yeah, I don't think that's a coincidence. And I think uh, history is actually the best teacher of, uh, you know, I think uh, future success as well. So being able to look at brands like that. Um, as a matter of fact, when I did a marketing kind of deep dive with the creative agency. Uh, when you mentioned Disney, it reminded me of that. This is maybe like five, six years ago. And it was that. Um, and it was, uh, you know, I remember with Disney, like the key words were creating moments of magic and imagination. Oh, right. right. And so like when you, when you think of that, like if that's the type of experience you're creating, 
Or is it going to be like Apple? Where again, right. it's not that, but it's also a magical moment in the sense that it's, you know, it's very, uh, it's very like clean and it's really about um, um, being able to, you know, get advice from experts and knowledgeable right. staff. And, and again, you can create a great experience. It doesn't necessarily mean one's better than the other, but you do need to, again, uh, be able to tap into those emotional and, and physical uh, notes that are going to drive people to, you know, come back over and over again and again, potentially fall in love with you every time they come in. Absolutely. So I, I'm now I'm going to ask a question because you mentioned it before that you're always on the 16th of every month, uh, you release new flavors. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, how fun is the R&D department at 16 Handles? I, I have to ask that. <laughs> come in. I mean, um, there's got to be, I, I gotta be mean, fun. If, yeah, if you were to ask my product manager, um, you know, the fun in it uh, versus, uh, you know, some other, look, it, it is fun, right? And again, fun is one of our pillars. It's one that we're never going to run away from. Um, you know, but I will say that it is also work, you know, so we work with a, um, a team of uh, a culinary team that's our uh, flavor producer and they're out in Michigan. And every year around September, October, I make a trip out there for three days and I am tasting and consuming more soft serve and ice cream and froyo than the, the average human should. Um, and that's basically all R&D based on uh, getting it to I'll be happy to take over that a flavor profile. I'll be happy to take over that yeah. for you. <laughs> well, see, it's funny because when I bring that up, that's what everybody says. And even to my <laughs> wife, when I come back and I'm like complaining about it, she's like, I, I understand that you eat so much of it during that time that you get sick of it. Um, but she goes, never say that out loud because you sound so silly. <laughs> like everyone else is going to be like, that's a dream job. And I'm like, you're right. You know, I think the thought of it is, but you know, but it is work. And for yes, us, you know, we're yes. looking at, you know, trying to get the perfect formulation that our guests will love. And, you know, so yes, but it is fun. Overall, the process is fun. We get to be creative. We get to look at what the culinary um, and food trends are um, and be able to get ahead of that. It, it is a lot of fun. Certainly. So, uh, the, but my question is, you're talking about R&D and you're talking about flavor profiles. Unlike a, a regular store that sells, let's just say, I don't know, uh, clothing or something where you can scan the dot, you know, scan the piece of clothing and say, okay, this piece of clothing was the most successful over the course of, you know, the last three months. So that means with projections, we should be buying more of that. And therefore we can make, you know, make sure that our customers are always getting that shirt or that pair of pants or shoes or whatever it is. With ice cream, I would imagine that there's got to be a little bit less of that, you know, like um, very like pr process because it's, it's not an item where you could just say, okay, we scanned, you know, over the course of the three weeks or a month, we've scanned a hundred pairs of white shirts. So we know you have to get more white shirts or blue pairs of pants or whatever. So how does the data that you have behind the scenes, because obviously the, the, the flavors, you know, you can always develop, but how do you take the data that you have to kind of make your, your projections or your, um, your flavors or your projections? How, how do you do that? Sure, sure. So I think it's two parts. So for one, you know, there are always uh, trend reports out there that a lot of these uh, agencies will provide. Um, you know, fortunately, being in New York City, which is the media capital of the U.S., right. um, and where again a lot of uh, a lot of food and culinary innovation happens, I'm very fortunate to be right there and understand that from what restaurants are offering to what the publications are posting as kind of the next year's you know um, uh, you know hot ingredients and flavors. But you know, in terms of on the on on the back end or after the fact, being able to leverage that data to make better decisions going forward, um, you know, I, I will say that there's a lot of trial and error that allows us to get to points of victory, right? And when we look at, uh, when we take the data points also from a usage standpoint, we have now over 10 years of data of what our customers 
uh, gravitate towards and what they don't across various markets. Um, and with that, we rather than try to kind of throw the dart against the wall and see like, you know, if it sticks, we're able to understand like, hey, so for instance, if this type of a vanilla works really, really well for us and it's still in our handles, you know, 10 years later, well, if we were to take a variation of that with, let's say, uh, this ingredient or, or I'll use Nutella as an example, which again is right. a globally recognized brand. That's been sure. one of our top flavors. So we reached out to them and, and did a, a collaboration where, you know, we will add Nutella to our, you know, our, our frozen yogurt base. We created a Nutella flavor and that has stuck you know, for the last, I think, four years, five years since we launched it. You're making me salivate. You're making me salivate. Well, look, I mean, I mean that's, <laughs> it, it's really, that's really the culinary process. And, you know, so some of it is marketing-based, right? So we've done a lot of collaborations over the years. And, and that's another way we get that is then we look at, well, who is the Nutella consumer, right, from a grocery setting? Try to build out the demographic and psychographic data there. Um, and then look at other brands that we think, you know, line up with the type of things that we're doing from a quality perspective, from a fun perspective, and reach out to those brands to be able to, again, like, you know, try to do flavors together and try to do a topping together and then collaborate on really being able to use each other's marketing platforms and own and paid uh, channels to be able to blast to a larger audience where there's a lot of uh, intersections. And so, again, I think those are the types of things that you would expect for a lifestyle brand to do, where it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're doing something with this brand, which we buy their stuff too. And wow, like, I, like it just creates a certain level of excitement and that's helped us. Um, but again, like it, it's really, like you said, going back to looking at data, um, there's, there's a lot of subsets of data that are available and that also that from our own uh, sales and usage data that we're able to kind of uh, pinpoint some, some truths or at least some uh, hypotheses that have a high degree of accuracy and uh, eliminate some of that guesswork. What, is it, what are the craziest flavors you've had to try or you've had to like you say is like, let's go with this or some of the craziest things that you've had to say like, yeah, that's never going to work even if we try to package it, market it, whatever you want to call it. What are those crazy flavors out there? I mean, I'm asking because... Man, some of the crazy flavors that we've sampled here from our, uh, from our manufacturer that haven't gone in, let's see, one that I could think of right off the bat was a hemp-flavored uh, frozen yogurt. <laughs> um, I personally liked it, but, uh, you know, uh, the rest of the team was like, there's no way this is going to work. Um, oh, man. Uh, well, there's some other ones. Jeez, like we've done things like uh, uh, we've had corn, right? That never made it Ooh. to the handle. Um, again, trying to, trying to just, you know, for us, like we're never afraid to try. Right, and that trial may only go as far as our office or to a, you know, a subset of samplers, like at one store level. But, you know, I think if we're not willing to kind of push the boundaries, and again, for us, for us, if it's fun, like we also do want to have fun with it. We're not out there to try to make flavors that are going to be offensive to people, but at the same right. time, um, you know, if we're going to be 16 handles and be known for flavor innovation, then we need to be willing to go outside of, of, of just the safe zone. So that's something that I think we'll continue, that, that we'll continue to do. But yeah, there, there have been some, uh, uh, some, some interesting and fun ones like that, uh, that we've tried. We tried to do a kale, right? When kale oh. was really popular, it was like the, the hero salad product. Uh, again, something that I like personally, but you know, never made it past our uh, initial team's uh, feedback. But uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so you've made these crazy flavors. You've gotten, you know, you get to go three days a year. You get to go to Michigan and taste these crazy flavors and enjoy a lot of fun. So back to the basic question: Is what's more popular in sixteen handles, chocolate or vanilla? Is it like uh, which one? 
you know, I'm, I'm asking um, a fun question. Be, this yeah. is a fun co conversation because it's not like your standard branding and, uh, you know, it's not my standard conversations with some tech company or something like that. It's, you know, food, it's ice cream, which everyone kind of loves ice cream. So sure, sure. which one is it? So the definitive answer to that over the last 10 plus years is, is vanilla. Oh um, but, God. you know, there have been times where depending on the month that chocolate did exceed vanilla. So, you know, again, the absolute answer is vanilla, is but it goes back and forth. It's Valentine's Day. So that's when chocolate is popular. Exactly. Exactly. So, <laughs> so times like that. And also like during the holidays, for instance, chocolate will be. Uh, really? um, yeah. Because, again, it's also the kind of giftable um, thing of choice. And here's the other thing that you'll find. Interesting. There's actually a science behind this. Um, really? And, you know, for those. Uh, so being that the female is our kind of core demographic, not that we're only a female brand, but that is our, our main consumer, about 70% of our clientele are female. Um, we actually find that uh, you know, every so often that time of the month, um, there's a craving that they get, and that craving has <laughs> a strong affinity and association with, with chocolate. I'm not making this up. There's actual facts <laughs> and medical uh, papers out there. So once we learn that, you know, again, we realized that uh, having variations of, of chocolate offerings was something that was going to be, again, more relevant. And hey, that's part of lifestyle. That's part of what she has to do to get through life. So uh, we want to be there for her and give her, as, uh, you know, as sweet of an experience as, as we can. You know? Well, that's, uh, that's an interesting uh, science piece of data of science and, you know, knowing when to play to the right to your market. But you know, unlike, uh, uh, again, my question is, how do you identify that women are 70% of your customer base? It's not like you, I mean, maybe you do, I don't know what goes behind the register, but how do you make sure that you, how do you know that the women are really 70% of your customer base? How do you? Again? Sure. So we, 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 we have that with a very high degree of certainty based on our analytics from our email list um, to our various uh, you know, channel platforms like Facebook, Instagram. Oh, okay. Um, also yeah. through the surveys that we've received over the years, our loyalty program where they indicate, you know, male or female when they register. Right. Um, so we know with a high degree of certainty, it's not like a small sample set. I mean, right. it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's probably 70 to 75% depending wow. on store, but um, we have yet to see any market that we're in um, where it, it, it drops below 70. So we just stick with that number. That's an amazing... Um, that's an amazing thing. So but I like to, before the last, because your time is valuable, and I don't want to take more of your time, which I've already appreciate so much. And I really have learned a lot here because it's unbelievable content here. But I, I and you're, you've become like a real late leader. I've watched so many of the videos that are out there about you and on, on the news and things like that. So, you know, one of the questions I ask for a lot of entrepreneurs is, um, you're now a successful entrepreneur. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, th you mentioned earlier in our conversation also that you mentioned that um, you know, passion and that grit that people that entrepreneurs have often is the you know that that's the one trait that all entrepreneurs have, and some of them are successful at it, and some of them are less successful, and that makes the difference, right? It's not the business report, it's not the business plan, it's that grit and their mm -hmm. and their passion. What's the one behavior that that you see uh, as an entrepreneur that often derails people, like derails them? What's that? What's that one thing that you say to them? You know, take that out of your conversation, and then you'll start seeing some successes. What's that one aspect? Yeah, so, you know, I, I've been fortunate now, um, after having done this for over a decade, to be on the other side of that as, a, you know, um, an investor and or an advisor to, to other startup brands. And um, what I can say, even from my personal experience, being on that front is, um, and again, I, I, it's funny because depending on how you're asking me this question, I can argue both sides. But I would say <laughs> having, a lack of, having a lack of focus. Um, and what I mean by that is, 
it's very easy to chase after every shiny object or new potential idea or adding another product extension. Look, I get caught doing that myself even now, right? So, you know, but when I say a lack of focus, it's also um, because in the same vein, I think the ones that succeed faster than others are the ones who have a maniacal focus on what that objective is. And they don't let that objective change, even if it comes at the expense of not being able to monetize or make money off of it. That's the hardest thing to do. I've learned that even throughout my career in doing this is when I said, when I, I said no and turned down area development deals for states where they had the money and the infrastructure to open up 20 locations. And I turned that down and they were willing to pay for those franchise fees up front. Wow. I mean, how hard is that to be able to turn down seven figure upfront investments and say no to markets? Why? Because I know that infrastructurally I can't support it. So it will fail or the likelihood of it failing is very high. And for me, like I did not want that. And that's not going to create an environment where people are going to love the brand. That's going to be an overexpansion and, and greed and not being ready. And so to me, it's that. It's that maniacal focus of, hey, um, no right now, right? Not now, even though, wait, but it's possible and we can make money. Um, on, the other, on the other front, like I said, it's, hey, just because there are other things, um, better opportunities, like don't go chasing those things, um, stick to, kind of stick to that plan. Stick to the plan. And that, that plan, I feel like, is something that only that entrepreneur truly knows in his or her heart and mind. Um, and, and do whatever you need to do to kind of cross that initial finish line before kind of considering wow. something else. You wow. know, the other piece I'll say is, again, there, there, there are so many naysayers, that, and at the same time, you know, there's also advisors who may think that they're helping by providing good advice, but again, kind of stick with your gut. I think sticking with your gut and having a maniacal focus on that, you won't go wrong. You may make mistakes, you know, but you won't go wrong, and you won't look back and regret it. You know, the regrets that I've seen and that I've also had are the ones where, you know, I, I didn't do that, and I lost that focus. Like, oh, man, okay, I need to go back to that. I knew that that was the answer, but I got caught up in this, and you know, so I'll say it's that. It's, it's, that, it's that focus. Okay, last one last question, and then we'll stop because I'm I'm just like I'm actually floored by that state by what you just said because it's like such a um, such an important statement by the fact that you say just stick to the plan and your gut, which like you said, entrepreneurs often you know get so much advice from different people, from different mentors, different advisors, even sometimes even investors they get advice, and and mm -hmm. even though they're they're not sure, you said already you said is like you had a seven figure number on the table uh, as an offer as an investment, but you knew in your heart that you wouldn't be able to you know, pr produce at that level so quickly. And so he said, I have to say no right now. And that's a very difficult mm -hmm. statement to say. Most entrepreneurs would not oh, say believe, that. believe me, it was. And I've had, uh, I've had my family uh, uh, remind me that maybe that wasn't the best decision at the time. I, I, can only, I can only imagine what that conversation looked like. I'm sure it was done at a 16-handle store to make sure that it was a sweet uh, com. But, um, so, you know, what's the question that you think, like, 16-handles right now is saying is, like, what should we be asking as a brand or as a company? What should we be asking now that we haven't asked yet about the future of uh, food service, Froyo, ice cream, whatever it is? What's that, what's that question you haven't asked yet? You're saying is like, where can we, go? you know, what's that question? What's next? Yeah, so, you know, in terms of that what's next question, uh, you know, I think it's what other formats are going to allow me to be able to extend the brand beyond just the retail format that I've created? Now, I have inline stores, I have freestanding stores, I have kiosks, we're in Madison Square Garden as a kiosk. Um, so again, these are physical formats, but I'm even thinking beyond that, right? So, you know, in parts of the country where it may not make sense to, to open up the store, although I don't think that there's really that many places where that'd be the case, right. even still, as we're going more into a digital on-demand economy, right, and right. a mobile on-demand economy, 
you know, we were one of the first ones to be able to offer delivery um, of our product, um, you know, through the third-party platform. And for New York City, for instance, which is a very early adopter of, of all things mobile, right. it's becoming a significant piece of our business. So working through those, uh, working through those opportunities is, is a challenge that we love and we want to face head on. And again, we love being first. But even beyond that, it's how do we proactively look at, hey, you know, as we hear and read about and see a lot of these mega, you know, brands closing because of the, the Amazon effect and whatnot, like, how do we remain relevant and have different opportunities to connect and engage with our guests, again, in a physical way with our right. product, um, beyond just the store models that we have? And so to me, like, that would be something that, you know, I, I would have as a question and that's still kind of to be determined and that we're answering slowly um, as these opportunities arise. That is so I'm just like, I, I love your brand. I love your brand beforehand, but I love your brand even more. And that's not just because I'm talking to you, but just because the content that the amount of like, like effort, like, like concentration and focus that you've put on throughout this, you know, amazing journey of your success. But it's also like a lot of inspiration to entrepreneurs who are like, you know, sometimes struggling and often struggling. Uh, so I'm just so impressed with all these great, um, you know, pieces of value. So I, I want to say thank you, Solomon, for your time. I really do appreciate it. I know as a, if someone who's super busy like yourself, this is really, really um, valuable to me and to the, all, the, all, the, all the listeners are out there. Um, so thank you very much. Um, is there anything else that... Uh, so is there anything else that Solomon is doing before we uh, go that Solomon does on, uh, besides ice cream or besides frozen yogurt or 16 handles that just says, this is where we're going besides 16 handles? Sure, yeah. So as, as I kind of briefly mentioned earlier, so I am an early stage um, investor and advisor um, uh -huh. for early stage you know, food and beverage companies, both food service like restaurants, as well as at the retail level, CPG, whether it's bottled beverages or snack bars. And, you know, again, I think it's really the same type of approach, which is uh, commanding the attention of that, uh, that end user or that customer, uh, right. both online and offline. So that's something I'm very passionate about and, you know, building brands is what I'm most passionate about. And so, uh, you know, if anyone would also like to uh, connect me with either themselves or someone they know, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn and uh, yeah, and I love, I love talking about these types of things. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Solomon, for your time. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to coming back again in this summer to taste some more new flavors. And I looking forward to future conversations and hearing about your future success. Thank you so it's, much. It's been a pleasure, and we look forward to also serving your, your family more, guys, this, this summer. Awesome. Thank you so much, and have a, a great day. You too. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Be sure to sign up for the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. And remember, the next time you're doing business in the digital economy, make sure to empathize it.